Part 1, Chapter 1, The Christening The island lies off the Albanian and Greek coastlines like a long, rust-eroded scimitar. The hilt of the scimitar is the mountain region of the island, for the most part barren and stony, with towering rock cliffs haunted by blue rock thrushes and peregrine falcons. In the valleys in this mountain region, however, where water gushes plentifully from the red and gold rocks, you get forests of almond and walnut trees, casting shade as cool as a well, thick battalions of spear-like cypress and silver-trunked fig trees with leaves as large as a salver. The blade of the scimitar is made up of rolling greeny silver eiderdowns of giant olive trees, some reputedly over 500 years old, and each one unique in its hunched arthritic shape, its trunk pitted with a hundred holes like pumice stone. Towards the tip of the blade, you have Lefkimi, with its twinkling, eye-aching sand dunes and great salt marshes, decorated with acres of bamboos that creak and rustle and whisper to each other surreptitiously. The island is called Corfu. That August, when we arrived, the island lay breathless and sun-drugged in a smouldering peacock-blue sea under a sky that had been faded to a pale powder blue by the fierce rays of the sun. Our reasons for packing up and leaving the gloomy shores of England were somewhat nebulous, but based loosely on the fact that we were tired of the drab suburbanness of life in England and its accompanying bleak and unpleasant climate. So we had fled to Corfu, hoping that the sunshine of Greece would cure us of the mental and physical inertia which so long a sojourn in England had brought about. Very soon after we had landed, we had acquired our first villa and our first friend on the island. The friend was Spiro, a waddling barrel-shaped man with huge powerful hands and a brown leathery scowling face. He had perfected an odd but adequate command over English and he possessed an ancient dodge which he used as a taxi. We soon found that Spiro, like most of the Corfu characters, was unique. There seemed to be no one he did not know and nothing that he could not obtain or get done for you. Even the most bizarre requests from the family would be met by him with the remark, Don't you worry about that. I'll fix it, that. And fix it he would. His first major piece of fixing was the acquisition of our villa, for Mother had been insistent that we must have a bathroom, and this very necessary adjunct of wholesome living was in short supply in Corfu. But needless to say, Spiro knew of a villa with a bath, and very soon, after much shouting and roaring, Gesticulation, sweating and waddling to and fro, carrying armfuls of our goods and chattels, Spiro had us safely installed. From that moment he ceased to be merely a taxi driver that we hired, and became our guide, philosopher and friend. The villa that Spiro had found was shaped not unlike a brick, and was a bright crushed strawberry pink with green shutters. It crouched in a cathedral-like grove of olives that sloped down the hillside to the sea, and it was surrounded by a pocket-handkerchief-sized garden, the flower beds laid out in a geometrical accuracy so dear to the Victorians, and the whole thing guarded by a tall, thick hedge of fuchsias that rustled mysteriously with birds. Coming as we had done from a number of years' torture in the cold grey of England, the sunshine and the brilliant colours and scents it evoked acted on us all like a heady draught of wine. It affected each member of the family in a different way, Larry wandered about in a sort of daze, periodically quoting long stanzas of poetry to Mother, who either did not listen or else said, 
Very nice, dear, absently. She, entranced by the variety of fruit and vegetables available, spent most of her time closeted in the kitchen, preparing complicated and delicious menus for every meal. Margot, convinced that the sunshine would do for her acne what all the pills and potions of the medical profession had so far failed to do, sunbathed with strenuous earnestness in the olive groves, and in consequence got herself badly burned. Leslie discovered, to his delight, that one could purchase lethal weapons without a permit in Greece, and so he kept disappearing into town and reappearing, carrying a variety of fouling pieces ranging from ancient Turkish muzzle loaders to revolvers and shotguns. As he insisted on practising with each new acquisition, our nerves became somewhat frayed, and as Larry remarked somewhat bitterly, it was rather like living in a villa surrounded by revolutionary forces. The garden, for long untended, was an overgrown riot of uninhibited flowers and weeds in which whirled, squeaked, rustled and jumped a multicoloured merry-go-round of insect life, and so it was the garden that held my immediate attention. However luxurious our various gardens had been in England, they had never provided me with such an assortment of living creatures. I found myself prey to the most curious sensation of unreality. It was rather like being born for the first time. In that brilliant, brittle light, I could appreciate the true huntsman's red of a ladybird's wing case, the magnificent chocolate and amber of an earwig, and the deep shining agate of the ants. Then I could feast my eyes on a bewildering number of creatures unfamiliar to me, the great furry carpenter bees which prowled like electric blue teddy bears, humming to themselves from flower to flower, the sulphur-yellow black-striped swallow-tailed butterflies with their elegant cutaway coats that pirouetted up and down the fuchsia hedge doing complicated minuets with each other, and the hummingbird hawk moths that hung stationary, suspended by a blur of wings in front of the flowers while they probed each bloom with their long, delicate proboscises. I was exceedingly ignorant as to even the simplest facts about these creatures, and I had no books to guide me. All I could do was watch them as they went about their business in the garden, or capture them so that I could study them more carefully at first hand. Very soon my bedroom was filled with a battalion of jam jars and biscuit tins containing the prizes that I had found in our tiny garden. These had to be smuggled surreptitiously into the house, for the family, with the possible exception of mother, viewed the introduction of this fauna into the villa with considerable alarm. Each brilliant day brought some new puzzles of behaviour to underline my ignorance. One of the creatures that intrigued and irritated me most was the dung beetle. I would lie on my stomach with Roger, my dog, squatting like a mountain of black curls panting by my side, watching two shiny black dung beetles, each with a delicately curved rhino horn on its head, rolling between them, with immense dedication, a beautifully shaped ball of cow dung. To begin with, I wanted to know how they managed to make the ball so completely and beautifully round. I knew from my own experiments with clay and plasticine that it was extremely difficult to get a completely round ball, however hard you rubbed and manipulated the material. Yet the dung beetles, with only their spiky legs as instruments, devoid of calipers or any other aid, managed to produce these lovely balls of dung as round as the moon. Then there was the second problem. Why had they made it? And where were they taking it? 
I solved this problem, or part of it, by devoting one entire morning to a pair of dung beetles, refusing to be deviated from my task by the other insects in the garden, or by the faint moans and yawns of boredom that came from Roger. Slowly, on all fours, I followed them foot by laborious foot across the garden, which was so small to me and yet such a vast world to the beetles. Eventually they came to a small hummock of soft earth under the fuchsia hedge. Rolling the ball of dung uphill was a mammoth task, and several times the beetle's footwork was at fault, and the ball would break away and roll back to the bottom of the little incline, the beetles hurrying after it and, I like to imagine, shouting abuse at each other. Eventually, however, they got it to the top of the rise and started down the opposite slope. At the bottom of the slope, I noticed for the first time, was a round hole like a well, which had been sunk into the earth, and it was for this that the beetles were heading. When they were within a couple of inches of the hole, one of the beetles hurried ahead and backed into the hole where he sat, gesticulating wildly with his front legs, while the other beetle, with a considerable effort, I could almost convince myself that I had heard him panting, rolled the ball of dung up to the mouth of the burrow. After a considerable length of time spent in pushing and pulling, the ball slowly disappeared into the depths of the earth, and the beetles with it. This annoyed me. After all, they were obviously going to do something with the ball of dung, but if they did it underground, how could I be expected to see what they did? Hoping for some enlightenment on this problem, I put it to the family at lunchtime. What, I inquired, did dung beetles do with dung? There was a moment's startled silence. Well, I expect they find it useful, dear, said Mother vaguely. I trust you're not hoping to smuggle some into the house, Larry inquired. I refuse to live in a villa whose decor consists of balls of dung all over the floor. No, no, dear, I'm sure he won't, said Mother peaceably and untruthfully. Well, I'm just warning you, that's all, said Larry. As it is, he appears to have all the more dangerous insects out of the garden, closeted in his bedroom. They probably want it for warmth, said Leslie, who had been giving the matter of dung beetles some thought. Very warm stuff, dung. Ferments. Should we at any time require central heating, said Larry? I'll bear that in mind. They probably eat it, said Margot. Margot, dear, said Mother, not while we're having lunch. As usual my family's lack of biological knowledge had let me down. What you want to read, said Larry, absent-mindedly helping himself to another plateful of stew, which he had just described to Mother as being lacking in flavour, what you want to read is some Faber. I inquired what or who Faber was, more out of politeness than anything else, because as the suggestion had come from Larry, I was convinced that Faber would turn out to be some obscure medieval poet. Naturalist, said Larry, his mouth full, waving his fork at me. Well, about insects and things, I'll, I'll try and get you a copy. Overwhelmed with such unlooked-for magnanimity on the part of my elder brother, I made a point of being very careful within the next two or three days not to do anything to incur his wrath. But the days passed, and no book appeared, and eventually I forgot about it, and devoted my time to the other insects in the garden. But the word why pursued and frustrated me on every hand. Why did the carpenter bees cut out little circular pieces from the rose leaves and fly away with them? Why did the ants conduct what appeared to be passionate love affairs with the massed battalions of green fly that infested many of the plants in the garden? 
What were the strange amber transparent insect corpses or shells that I found sticking to grass stalks and to olive trees? They were the empty skins as fragile as ash of some creature with a bulbous body, bulbous eyes and a pair of thick, well-barbed forelegs. Why did each of these shells have a split down its back? Had they been attacked and had all of their life juices sucked out of them? If so, what had attacked them and what were they? I was a bubbling cauldron of questions which the family were unable to answer. I was in the kitchen when Spiro arrived one morning some days later as I was showing mother my latest acquisition, a long, thin, caramel-coloured centipede which I was insisting, in spite of her disbelief, glowed with a white light at night. Spiro waddled into the kitchen, sweating profusely, looking, as he always did, truculent and worried. I've brought your meals, Mrs. Durris, he said to Mother, and then, glancing at me, Mornings, Master's Jerry's. Thinking, in my innocence, that Spiro would share my enthusiasm for my latest pet, I pushed the jam jar under his nose and urged him to feast his eyes upon it. He took one swift look at the centipede, now going round and round in the bottom of the jar like a clockwork train, dropped the mail on the floor, and retreated hurriedly behind the kitchen table. Gorgeous masters, Jerry's, he said. What are you doing with that? I explained it was only a centipede, puzzled at his reaction. Them bastards are poisonous, Mrs. Durris, said Spiro earnestly to Mother. Honest to God's masters, Jerry's shouldn't have things like that. Well, perhaps not said Mother vaguely. But he's so interested in all these things. Take it outside, dear, where Spiro can't see it. Makes me scarce, I heard Spiro say, as I left the kitchen with my precious jar. Honest to God's Mrs. Dulles, makes me scarce what that boy finds. I managed to get the centipede into my bedroom without meeting any other members of the family, and I bedded him down in a small dish, tastefully decorated with moss and bits of bark. I was determined that the family should appreciate the fact that I had found a centipede that glowed in the dark. I had planned that night to put on a special pyrotechnic display after dinner. However, all thoughts of the centipede and his phosphorescence were completely driven from my mind, for in with the mail was a fat brown parcel, which Larry, having glanced at it, tossed across to me while we were eating lunch. Faber, he said succinctly. Forgetting my food, I tore the parcel open, and there inside was a squat green book entitled The Sacred Beetle and Others by Jean-Henri Faber. Opening it, I was transported by delight, for the frontispiece was a picture of two dung beetles, and they looked so familiar they might as well have been close cousins of my own dung beetles. They were rolling a beautiful ball of dung between them. Enraptured, savouring every moment, I turned the pages slowly. The text was charming, no erudite or confusing tome this. It was written in such a simple, straightforward way that even I could understand it. Leave the book till later, dear. Eat your lunch before it gets cold, said Mother. Reluctantly, I put the book on my lap and then attacked my food with such speed and ferocity that I had acute indigestion for the rest of the afternoon. This in no way detracted from the charm of delving into Faber for the first time. While the family siestered, I lay in the garden in the shade of the tangerine trees and devoured the book, page by page, until by tea time, to my disappointment, I had reached the end. But nothing could describe my elation. I was now armed with knowledge. I knew, I felt, 
everything there was to know about dung beetles. Now they were not merely mysterious insects crawling ponderously throughout the olive groves, they were my intimate friends. About this time, another thing that extended and encouraged my interest in natural history, though I cannot say that I appreciated at the time, was the acquisition of my first tutor, George. George was a friend of Larry's, tall, lanky, brown-bearded and bespectacled, possessed of a quiet and sardonic sense of humour. It is probable that no tutor has ever had to battle with such a reluctant pupil. I could see absolutely no reason for having to learn anything that was not connected with natural history, and so our early lessons were fraught with difficulty. Then George discovered that by correlating such subjects as history, geography and mathematics with zoology, he could get some results, and so we made fair progress. However, the best thing, as far as I was concerned, was that one morning a week was devoted exclusively to natural history, when George and I would peer earnestly at my newly acquired specimens and endeavour to identify them and work out their life histories. A meticulous diary was kept, which contained a large number of flamboyant and somewhat shaky pictures purporting to be of the specimens in question, done by me in a variety of coloured inks and watercolours. Looking back, I have a sneaking feeling that George enjoyed the mornings devoted to natural history as much as I did. It was, for example, the only morning during the week that I would go to meet him. I would amble through the olive groves halfway to the tiny villa that he occupied, and then Roger and I would conceal ourselves in a clump of myrtle and await his approach. Presently he would appear, clad in nothing but a pair of sandals, faded shorts and a gigantic tattered straw hat, carrying under one arm a pile of books and swinging a long, slender walking stick in the other hand. The reasons for going to meet George, I regret to say, was of entirely mercenary nature. Roger and I would squat in the sweet-scented myrtles and lay bets with each other as to whether or not, on this particular morning, George was going to fight an olive tree. George was an expert fencer and had a quantity of cups and medals to prove it, so the desire to fight something frequently overcame him. He would be striding along the path, his spectacles glittering, swinging his walking stick, when suddenly one olive tree would become an evil and malignant thing that had to be taught a lesson. Dropping his books and hat by the side of the path, he would advance cautiously towards the tree in question, his walking stick, now transformed into a sword, held in his right hand at the ready, his left arm held out elegantly behind him. Slowly, stiff-legged, like a terrier approaching a bull mastiff, he would circle the tree, watching with narrowed eyes for its first unfriendly move. Suddenly he would lunge forward and the point of his stick would disappear in one of the holes in the olive tree's trunk, and he would utter a pleased, HA! and immediately dodge back out of range before the tree could retaliate. I noticed that if he succeeded in driving his sword into one of the smaller of the olive tree's holes, this did not constitute a death wound, merely a slight scratch, which apparently had the effect of rousing his antagonist to a fury. For a second, he would be fighting grimly for his life, dancing nimble-footed around the olive tree, lunging and parrying, leaping away with a downward slash of his sword, turning aside the vicious lunge that the olive tree had aimed at him, but so rapidly that I had missed the move. Some olive trees he would finish off quickly with a deadly thrust through one of the larger holes, into which his sword disappeared almost up to the hilt. But on several occasions he met with an olive tree that was almost more than a match for him, and for perhaps a quarter of an hour or so it would be a fight to the death, 
with George grim-faced, using every cunning trick he knew to break through the defences of the giant tree and kill it. Once he had successfully killed his antagonist, George would wipe the blood off his sword fastidiously, put on his hat, pick up his books, and continue humming to himself down the path. I always let him get a considerable distance away before joining him, for fear he should realise I had watched his imaginary battle and become embarrassed by it. It was about this time that George introduced me to someone who was going to become immediately the most important person in my life, Dr Theodore Stephanides. To me, Theodore was one of the most remarkable people I had ever met, and 33 years later I am still of the same opinion. With his ash-blonde hair and beard and his handsome aquiline features, Theodore looked like a Greek god, and certainly he seemed as omniscient as one. Apart from being medically qualified, he was also a biologist, his particular study being freshwater biology, poet, author, translator, astronomer and historian, and he found time between these multifarious activities to help run an X-ray laboratory, the only one of its kind in the town of Corfu. I had first met him over a little problem of trapdoor spiders, a creature that I had only recently discovered, and he had imparted to me such fascinating information about them, so diffidently and shyly, that I was captivated, not only by the information, but by Theodore himself, for he treated me exactly as though I were an adult. After our first meeting, I was convinced that I should probably never see him again, as anyone as omniscient and famous as he was could not possibly have the time to spare for a ten-year-old. But the following day, I received the present of a small pocket microscope from him, and a note asking me to go to tea with him in his flat in town. Here I piled him with eager questions and breathlessly ran riot through the enormous library in his study and peered for hours through the gleaming barrels of microscopes at the strange and beautiful forms of pond life that Theodore, like a magician, seemed able to conjure out of any drab, dirty stretch of water. After my first visit to Theodore, I asked Mother tentatively whether I might ask him to come to tea with us. I suppose so, dear, said Mother. I hope he speaks English, though. Mother's battle with the Greek language was a losing one. Only the day previously she had spent an exhausting morning preparing a particularly delicious soup for lunch, and having concluded this to her satisfaction, she put it into a soup tureen and handed it to the maid. The maid looked at her inquiringly, whereupon Mother used one of the few Greek words that she had managed to commit to memory. Exo! she had said firmly, waving her arms. Exo! She then went on with her cooking and turned round just in time to see the maid pouring the last of the soup down the sink. This had not unnaturally given her a phobia about her linguistic abilities. I said indignantly that Theodore could speak excellent English, in fact, if anything, better English than we could. Soothed by this, Mother suggested that I write Theodore a note, and invite him out for the following Thursday. I spent an agonising two hours hanging about in the garden waiting for him to arrive, peering every few minutes through the fuchsia hedge, a prey to the most terrible emotions. Perhaps the note had never reached him, or perhaps he had put it in his pocket and forgotten about it and was, at this moment, gallivanting eruditely at the southernmost tip of the island. Or perhaps he had heard about the family and just didn't want to come. If that was the case, I vowed, I would not lightly forgive them. But presently I saw him, neatly tweed suited, his Homburg squarely on his head, 
striding up through the olive trees, swinging his stick and humming to himself. Hung over his shoulder was his collecting bag, which was as much part of him as his arms and legs, for he was rarely seen anywhere without it. To my delight, Theodore was an immediate, uproarious success with the family. He could, with a shy urbanity, discuss mythology, Greek poetry and Venetian history with Larry, ballistics and the best hunting areas on the island with Leslie, good slimming diets and acne cures with Margot, and peasant recipes and detective stories with Mother. The family behaved much in the same way that I had behaved when I went to tea with him. He seemed such an endless mine of information that they bombarded him ceaselessly with questions, and Theodore, as effortlessly as a walking encyclopaedia, answered them all, adding, for good measure, a sprinkling of incredibly bad puns and hilarious anecdotes about the island and the islanders. At one point, to my indignation, Larry said that Theodore ought to desist from encouraging me in my interest in natural history, for, as he pointed out, the villa was a small one and already stuffed to capacity with practically every revolting bug and beetle that I could lay my hands on. It isn't that, said Mother, that worries me. It's the mess that he gets himself into. Really, Theodore, after he's been out for a walk with Roger, he has to change into completely clean clothes. I don't know what he does with them. Theodore gave a tiny grunt of amusement. I remember once, he said, popping a piece of cake into his mouth and chewing it methodically, his beard bristling and his eyes kindling happily. I was coming to tea with some, um, you know, friends of mine here in Parama. At that time I was in the army and I was rather proud of the fact that I had just been made a captain. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, to uh, show off... I wore my uniform, which included beautifully polished boots and spurs. I was rowed across by the ferry to Parama, and as I was walking through the little marshy bit, I saw a plant that was new to me, so I stepped over to collect it, treading on what, um, uh, you know, seemed to be firm ground. Uh, I suddenly found that I had sunk up to my armpits in very foul-smelling mud. Fortunately, there was a small tree nearby, and I um, uh, managed to grab hold of it and pull myself out. But now I was covered from the waist downwards with stinking black mud. The sea was, uh, you know, quite, uh, quite close, so I uh, thought it would be better to be wet with clean seawater than uh, covered with mud. So I waded out into it and walked up and down. Uh, just at that moment, a bus happened to pass on the road above, and as soon as they saw me with my cap on and my uniform coat, walking about in the sea, the bus driver immediately stopped so that all his passengers could uh, get a better view of the spectacle. They all seemed considerably puzzled, but they were even more astonished when I walked out of the sea, and they saw that I was wearing boots and spurs as well. Solemnly, Theodore waited for the laughter to subside. I think you know, he said meditatively and quite seriously, that I definitely undermined their faith in the sanity of the army. Theodore was a huge success with the family, and ever after that he came out to spend at least one day a week with us preferably more if we could inveigle him away from his numerous activities. 
By this time we had made innumerable friends among the peasant families that lived around us, and so vociferously hospitable were they, that even the shortest walk was almost indefinitely prolonged. For at every little house we came to, we would have to sit down and drink a glass of wine or eat some fruit with its owners and pass the time of day. Indirectly, this was very good for us, for each of these meetings strengthened our rather shaky command over the Greek language, so that soon we found that we were fairly proficient in conducting quite complicated conversations with our peasant friends. Then came the accolade, the gesture that proved to us that we had been accepted by the community in general. We were asked to a wedding. It was the wedding of Katerina, the sister of our maid, Maria. Katerina was a voluptuous girl, with a wide, glittering smile and brown eyes as large and soft as pansies. Gay, provocative and as melodious as a nightingale, she had been breaking hearts in the district for most of her twenty years. Now she had settled on Stephanos, a sturdy, handsome boy whom the mere sight of Katerina rendered tongue-tied, inarticulate and blushing with love. When you were invited to a wedding, we soon discovered, the thing was not done in half measures. The first festivity was the engagement party, when you all went to the bride's house carrying your presents, and she thanked you prettily for them and plied you with wine. Having suitably mellowed the guests, the future bride and groom would start walking to what was to be their future home, preceded by the village band, two violins, a flute and a guitar, playing sprightly airs and followed by the guests all carrying their presents. Katerina's presents were a fairly mixed bag. The most important was a gigantic double brass bed, and this led the procession carried by four of Stephanos's friends. Thereafter followed a string of guests carrying sheets, pillowcases, cushions, a wooden chair, frying pans, large bottles of oil and similar gifts. Having installed the presents in the new cottage, we then drank to the health of the couple, and thus warmed their future home for them. We then all retired to our homes, slightly light-headedly, and waited for the next act in the drama, which was the wedding itself. We had asked, somewhat diffidently, if Theodore might attend the wedding with us, and the bride and her parents were enchanted with the idea, since, as they explained with becoming ingenuousness, very few weddings in the district could boast of having a whole English family and a genuine doctor as guests. The great day came, and donning our best clothes and collecting Theodore from town, we made our way down to Katerina's parents' house, which stood among olive trees overlooking the sparkling sea. This was where the ceremony was to take place. When we got there, we found it a hive of activity. Relatives had come on their donkeys from villages as far as ten miles away. All round the house, groups of ancient men and decrepit old women sat engulfing wine in vast quantities, gossiping as ceaselessly and as animatedly as magpies. For them, this was a great day, not only because of the wedding, but because, living as much as ten miles distant, they were probably having their first opportunity in twenty years to exchange news and scandal. The village band was in full spate, the violins whining, the guitar rumbling, and the flute making periodic squeaks like a neglected puppy. And so that all this, the younger guests were dancing under the trees, while nearby the carcasses of four lambs were sizzling and bubbling on spits over a great chrysanthemum blaze of charcoal. Aha, said Theodore, 
his eyes alight with interest. Now that dance they are doing is the Corfu dance. It is, and uh, and the uh, uh, the tune originated here in Corfu. There, there are some authorities, of course, who believe that the dance, uh, uh, that is to say the steps, um, originated in Crete. Uh, but for myself, I believe it is um, an entirely Corfu product. The girls in their goldfinch-bright costumes revolved prettily in a half-moon, while ahead of them pranced a swarthy young male with a crimson handkerchief, bucking, leaping, twisting and bowing, like an exuberant cockerel to his admiring entourage of hens. Katerina and her family came forward to greet us, and ushered us to the place of honour, a rickety wooden table that had been spread with a white cloth, and at which was already sitting a magnificent old priest who was going to perform the ceremony. He had a girth like that of a whale, snow-white eyebrows, and a moustache and beard so thick and luxuriant that almost all that could be seen of his face were two twinkling olive-black eyes and a great jutting wine-red nose. On hearing that Theodore was a doctor, the priest, out of the kindness of his heart, described in graphic detail the innumerable symptoms of his several diseases which God had seen fit to inflict with him, and in the end of his recital laughed uproariously at Theodore's childish diagnosis that a little less wine and a little more exercise might alleviate his ailments. Larry eyed Katerina, who, clad in her white bridal gown, had joined the circle of the dancers. In her tight white satin, Katerina's stomach was more prominent and noticeable than it would have been otherwise. "'This wedding,' said Larry, "'is taking place not a moment too soon.' "'Do be quiet, dear,' whispered Mother. "'Some of them might speak English.' "'It is a curious fact,' said Theodore, oblivious to Mother's stricture, "'that at a lot of the weddings you will find the bride in uh, um, a similar condition. Uh, "'The peasants here are very Victorian in their outlook. "'If a, a young man is uh, seriously courting a girl,' Neither family dreams for a moment that he will not marry her. In fact, if he did try to, um, you know, uh, run off, both his family and the bride's family would be after him. This leads to a situation where, when the young man is courting, he is uh, uh, chaffed, uh, that is to say, has his leg pulled by all the young men of the district who say that they doubt his... Um, prowess as a, um, you know, um, potential father. Uh, they get the poor fellow into such a state that he is almost forced to, uh, you know, um, prove himself. Very unwise, I would have thought, said Mother. Uh, uh, no, no, said Theodore, endeavouring to correct Mother's unscientific approach to the problem. It is, in fact, considered to be quite a good thing for the bride to be pregnant. It proves her um, fecundity. Presently the priest heaved his vast bulk onto his gouty feet and made his way into the main room of the house which had been prepared for the ceremony. When he was ready, Stephanos, perspiring profusely, his suit half a size too small for him and looking slightly dazed at his good fortune, was propelled towards the house by a laughing, joking band of young men while a group of shrilly chattering young women fulfilled the same function for Katerina. The main room of the house was extremely tiny, 
so that by the time the bulk of the well-larded priest had been inserted into it, plus all the accoutrements of his trade, there was only just about enough room for the happy couple to stand in front of him. The rest of us had to be content with peering through the door or through the windows. The service was incredibly long, and to us incomprehensible, though I could hear Theodore translating bits of it to Larry. It seemed to me to involve quite an unnecessary amount of intoning, accompanied by innumerable signs of the cross and the splashing of tidal waves of holy water. Then two little garlands of flowers like twin halos were held over the heads of Katerina and Stephanos, and while the priest droned on, these were exchanged at intervals. As it had been some considerable time since the people who held these garlands had been to a wedding, they occasionally misinterpreted the priest's instructions, and there was, so to speak, a clash of garlands over the heads of the bridal pair. But at long last rings were exchanged and placed upon the brown, work-calloused fingers, and Katerina and Stephanos were truly, and we hoped, irretrievably wed. The silence during the ceremony had been almost complete, broken only by the odd, drowsy chuckle of a hen or the shrill and instantly repressed squall of a baby. But now the stern part of the ceremony was over, and the party blossomed once again. The band dug down into its repertoire and produced gayer and more sprightly tunes. Laughter and raucous badinage arose on every side. The wine flowed guggling from the bottles, and the guests danced round and round and round, flushed and happy as inexorably as the hands on a clock face. The party did not end until well after twelve. All the older guests had already made their way homewards on drooping donkeys. The great fires with the remains of the sheep carcasses over them had died in a shroud of grey ash with only a sprinkling of garnet embers winking in it. We took a last glass of wine with Katerina and Stephanos, and then made our way sleepily through the olive groves, silvered by a moon as large and as white as a magnolia blossom. The scops owls chimed mournfully to each other, and the odd firefly winked emerald green as we passed. The warm air smelled of the day's sunshine, of dew, and of a hundred aromatic leaf scents. Mellow and drugged with wine, walking between the great hunched olives, their trunks striped with cool moonlight, I think we all felt that we'd arrived, that we'd been accepted by the island. We were now under the quiet, bland eye of the moon, christened Corfiots. The night was beautiful, and tomorrow we knew another tiger-golden day lay ahead of us. It was as though England had never really existed. <laughs>